We're making our way through the Gospel of John and wrestling with the question, how and in what ways is God present with us this morning? Jesus claims to be the light of the world. So if you turn with me either in your Bibles or in your worship guides to John chapter 8, we'll be reading verses 12 through 30. And let's ask uh, for God's blessing as we seek to understand His Word. Father, we thank You that Your light comes to us in Your Word, and we pray that it would both illumine our minds and our hearts as well as the world before us in ways that You see fit. We pray by this we would have understanding and that we would make our way on our journey of faith and in our discipleship with You in ways that are honoring and glorifying to You and thereby good for us. We ask for Your grace in this. In Christ's name, Amen. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I came, come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For if I, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Boys and girls, I admit that I do not yet know where I'm going to hang your pictures, but you do have an extra sheet of paper. I have been saving them all, and we will eventually decide where they're going to go. But it is a great day to draw. What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? And perhaps to draw the faces of the Pharisees as they try to understand what Jesus is talking about when he makes that claim. And that is the question really before the grown-ups today as well. How is Jesus the light of the world? What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? And today I'd like to tell you the story of an individual named Michael May. It was a sunny spring day in 1957. Michael's family had recently moved uh, to New Mexico where his dad had taken a job in copper mining. 
and they were exploring and getting to know the, the new house. And he was three at this time. His older sister was five. They were playing outside and in the garage. And he found a powder in a jar that, that looked perfect for making mud pies. And there was some water in a bucket nearby. And there happened also to be some garbage burning not too far in the distance. And he dumped the powder into the, the water and, uh, which created an explosive gas. The, the powder, um, was calcium carbonate and mixed with water made acetylene, which is very explosive and eventually ignited and an explosion occurred, which blew, uh, right in the face of, of Michael May. And so he was rushed to the hospital and the first time the surgeon came out to visit his mother that night, he said simply, he's not going to make it. And he went back into surgery and, Ora Jean, Michael's mother, of course, is distraught, and but said even at that moment, at least the story wasn't over yet. It wasn't done. And so she hung on, and eventually, the next morning, they made the determination and said, we think he's going to make it, uh, but his eyes are utterly destroyed. Uh, in, in one, there's nothing left, and in the other, it, it's beyond repair, and he will never see. And so... Uh, Michael May, at, at the age of three, began to figure out what it meant to live in a world without eyesight, to live in darkness, to be blind. And it's Michael that we're going to use as kind of metaphor to understand that that's very much the situation that the Bible presents to us, that we are born in darkness, we are born in blindness. In fact, Jesus has already said in the Gospel of John that even though he comes bringing the light, the problem is that people prefer darkness rather than the light. And this is our very condition, that we exist in blindness. And so, uh, what does it mean to live in a world of darkness? What does it mean for Jesus to come and say, I'm the light that can expose this darkness. This is what we're wrestling with. And we'll approach the passage in these three points. Number one, living blind. Number two, coming to see. And number three, living in the light. So number one, living blind. Number two, coming to see. And number three, living in the light. So, again, as you work your way through the Gospel of John, Jesus makes these profound announcements, proclamations as to who He is, who, uh, how He identifies Himself. Uh, one of the things that should strike you now as we're making our way through the Gospel of John is John, compared to the synoptic Gospels, relies incredibly little on parables. Right? At this point, you should be saying, what? We haven't gotten a lot of... What's going on in John? But John's going to do things where he uh, where he uses different uh, teaching tools, different writing techniques to convey the teaching of Jesus. And he's going to stress different things. But one of the things that he does as we go through is he camps out on these claims that Jesus makes, like, I am the light of the world. And this is the one before us in verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's a winsome invitation, but as I've said, Jesus has already laid down the challenge in uh, John 3.19 that people prefer the darkness. Now, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, you realize that he's drawing on a remarkably large body of imagery in the Bible. I mean, it's, when you, If you type in light in a Bible search or darkness you're going to get a massive list of hits because this is very, uh, it's very deep, it's very pregnant language when we start to think about God. 
And so just to get your um, thinking in the right direction, a quick survey or reminders of how these things play out in God's Word. Remember that light is the first created thing. And it's interesting that at the end of the story in Revelation 21, God is such light that He illuminates His whole kingdom and all darkness is chased away. There is no more night. It's also interesting that uniquely of all the ancient religions of which we are aware, Christianity alone makes light the creation of the Creator. In all other religions, light is deified. In other words, the sun is worshipped. But in Christianity alone, light, the creation of light, is the project of the Creator. As you go through the Old Testament, you see that light is God's comfort to His people. As His people come out in the Exodus and go through the wilderness, He leads them in a pillar of cloud by day, but a pillar of light by night. It is their sanctuary. And as you continue to go forth, uh, God's Word is described as light and is bringing light to our path. And then Jesus assumes that store, that identity that He is the light, the Word made flesh. Light throughout the Scriptures liberates from darkness, which also has very serious connotations. Anyway, you know, when we talk about light and darkness, we're not simply talking about the light and darkness that we see. In fact, when the Bible talks about darkness... It's usually talking about um, something that's much deeper. Spiritual darkness. Dangerous darkness. Darkness in which evil lurks and occurs. And so, and it's interesting that darkness is really just the absence of light. Is it not? And that the end of our story is that there is so much light that darkness no longer exists. In Job, darkness is described as that which makes us, we have to grope to find our way if we exist in darkness. Uh, Job also describes it as an inability to progress down a certain pathway because of darkness. Proverbs tells us that we stumble because of darkness. And Isaiah says that when one sits in the darkness, they sit in gloom, that there is a spiritual oppressiveness to the darkness that we're talking about. Proverbs tells us that it's an opportunity for sin. And of course, both Jesus in Luke and Paul in Ephesians will tell us that the spiritual powers that dominate this world and afflict God's people exist in darkness. That they are associated with that this present darkness. We're talking about profoundly strong language describing the nature of the world and the, the contest that exists between God and His people, light, and against the forces of evil which are characterized as darkness. Ultimately, we look at the end and light triumphs over darkness, but we exist still where there's a contest between those forces. And into this mix, into this battle, Jesus comes and says, I am the light of the world. I am the one who dispels darkness. I am the one who brings clarity and allows one to see correctly. And so one might be tempted to think that, oh, well, Jesus is the light of the world. Great, I want to see. That would be fantastic. Who wants to live in darkness? But the reality is a bit more complicated than that. And a real story of blindness helps us to understand that complicated nature. What do you do when you find yourself blind? How do you grow up? Michael May, the young boy who was blinded by the explosion in his garage, is uh, had an unusual mother whose name was Aura Jean. 
And Origene, who uh, had suffered under Michael's father, who was a bit of a tool and would soon drop out of the picture, and she would raise four children alone, decided basically from the get-go that Michael would never be dependent because of his disability. And that it was her job to raise him in such a way that he would be able to function in the world. And so she immediately said no to any kind of blind school and said, you're going to public school. And so Michael began to grow up, and when he came home all black and blue because he had walked too close in front of the swing set, she said, oh, it seems like you had a good day. And when his siblings would match his red and blue socks together or would pour the dog food in his cereal bowl, she would laugh it off and just help Michael see that he had to figure out how to, how to make his way in this world. And so Michael started with a bent that he became famous for later is that in essence he would run into anything headlong. He uh, played soccer and flag football uh, as the blind kid in the public school and would just basically scramble onto the field and grab as many flags as he could feel from the other team and his own team. Right? He just has this zeal for life and begins to say, well, I'm going to figure this out one way or another. And so he um, he continues to get his bearing, but starts to take on greater and greater challenges. He says, Mom, I'm going to learn how to ride a bike. And she says, okay. And after he destroys a couple of bikes and um, scrapes himself up head to toe, he figured out how to ride a bike. And in the fifth or sixth grade, he appealed to be a crossing guard, at which the principal said, absolutely not. That makes no sense. Um, <laughs> And then Michael petitioned that he could hear the cars coming as well as anyone could see them, and he was soon donning the crossing guard vest, and the blind kid was walking the kids across the the street at the local public school. Uh, As he was getting a little bit older in high school, he got into shortwave radio for a spell and decided that he needed an antenna in his backyard to maximize distance, and so he ordered an 80-foot antenna and began to set it up in the backyard. And as he started to connect the second piece to the first piece, Origene decided she had to leave and drive around until he was done. And when she came back, they had an 80-foot antenna in the backyard that Michael had somehow assembled and survived. And this is the way that Michael grew up. And Michael goes to college at UC Davis, and he um, is he dates, and he uh, lives on campus, and he goes and spends a semester abroad in Ghana. And he graduates from college, he gets a master's degree, and he becomes the first blind analyst for the CIA. He also possesses the downhill ski speed record at 65 miles an hour for a blind person because he was the only person willing to put his guide so close in front of him, which was thought to be ludicrous in terms of safety standards, um, in terms of going down the mountain because you could be so much more prone to a crash. And then went on ultimately to start up his own company, which was very successful and makes sophisticated GPS positioning systems for blind people. So we don't know this. We don't exist in this world. But uh, as if you ask a blind person, Michael May is the most interesting man alive. He is the coolest of the cool in the blind community. So it's particularly uh, interesting and exceptional that around, um, around the age of 55 or 57, uh, biological technology advanced to the degree that in an off-chance encounter, Michael was talking to an ophthalmologist, and the ophthalmologist said, you know what, I think I can make you see. What, what do you do? 
after a life of blindness, out of life being known for how you've survived and navigated blindness, after a life of being part of a blind community, you know, what, how do you decide to navigate that very difficult decision? We've all uh, lived in darkness. We're born into darkness. Michael May entered into a particular kind of biological darkness as a result of this explosion. And then he, like we in Christ, are presented with the opportunity to see. We say, of course, we want to come to Jesus and see. But you know what's really fascinating about this story is that if you look at the history of people who have lived blind and then received sight later in life, it's not a good idea. The vast majority of case studies uh, reveal a very bleak picture in which people who have learned to survive their entire life and have, their brain has actually become organized according to ways in which to absorb and uh, interpret information without eyesight, when you suddenly introduce light and eyesight, everything changes and it's incredibly difficult. It's like learning how to walk. Uh, or learning how to engage the world for the first time with eyesight. You know, just one little example is that um, a little child growing up spends years, essentially what your brain is doing, when you just think about something as simple as recognizing a human face and making it, understanding it to be different than another human face and understanding facial inspection, uh, expression, a child's brain is essentially creating incredibly complex algorithms to carry out that task. If you don't have eyesight, your brain doesn't need to do that. Your brain goes down different roads. But then when light is introduced, and uh, later in life, after a life of blindness, people have incredible amounts of difficulty with three dimensions and with under recognizing faces and telling them apart from each other. Why? Because their brains weren't formed with these neural pathways to carry out these functions. And so to introduce it later in life... It can be debilitating, and there are a number of case studies in which people entered into severe depressions. They regretted their decision. There's one or two case studies where the people tried to claw their eyes out after they had been healed because it was so, it was a world that they had never known. And, uh, now a new degree of information that they had never had, and it was very difficult to navigate. And so we talk about, well, of course, it would be nice to live with sight. It would, how wonderful that Jesus brings us sight. But you have to understand that you are a lot like Michael May. In other words, by virtue of being born in darkness, being born with a degree of blindness, you have learned to function in this world blind. And as Jesus brings sight, it's not an easy thing. And if you think it's an easy thing, then I have kind of the suspicion that you've not really experienced it. You've come up with all kinds of very impressive ways, just as impressive as Michael May skiing down a mountain behind a guide at 65 miles an hour, of dealing with this world and handling this this world in spiritual darkness. Because you you come out into the world and you you know this you you believe in God and even as you come to faith, right? We're not talking about one decisive moment in which you suddenly can't see and you suddenly can see. But the, the revelation of seeing as it comes to us as we come to follow Jesus, and as you go down the path, you realize, oh, well, in my darkness, the world is very scary, and I decided that to handle that scariness, I would just tend to escape. And so I, I tend to watch tons of TV, or I tend to get immersed in books and not come out. And that's easier than actually handling the world because the world is scary. Escapism is one 
means, but what about busyness? seems like every week three of you tell me how incredibly busy you are. And maybe it is because in being born into this world, you say, well, well, it's hard. You know, I can't see and the path isn't clear in the path that I should take. And so how am I going to navigate this world? Well, I'm just going to make myself very busy. I'm going to be an achiever. And so it's one achievement to another, after another, after another, and you get profoundly busy. And it's a way of actually coping with the difficulty of the world. Right? If I'm busy enough, I don't actually have to think about the challenges that are around me and figuring things out and how to proceed in darkness. Escapism, being busy. Some of you are uh, preparedness Nazis. And you think, well, yes, I can't really see. The path isn't always clear. And I know my eyes aren't always clear. There's a degree of darkness. But... If I prepare myself for every possible scenario, then I'll be okay. Because whatever, com- you know, a ball may come at my face and I may not see it. I may hear it too late. It may hit me in the face, but I'll be ready because I have a first aid kit in my back pocket. And so you go through life with this massive commitment to preparedness. And this is how you navigate darkness, right? If you understand the Bible story that we're all born into darkness, we're all born blind, and even when we come to Christ, it's not, well, suddenly we see everything clearly. It's a gradual illumination. And I think we should probably be thankful that it is. It might be crushing if it wasn't. But in that process, we still hang on to these, these mechanisms by which we've, we've navigated life. Right? Just like a blind person, when Michael May immediately receives sight, he suddenly can't go, oh, now I'm going to go through life as a seeing person. No, he has to... The, it takes them an hour to drive a short distance home because for 200 times on the way home, he asks his wife, who can see, what is that? What is that? What is that? He has no idea what anything is and has to begin to relearn everything. Michael May, now when he looks at a face to see who someone is, you know, you look at a face and you're like, oh, it's that person. He has to go through a checklist. What are their, what color are their eyebrows? What color are their eyes? What's the shape of their nose? You do it without thinking. You learned it as an infant before you could talk. Right? Michael May, he can't teach his brain to do that now. He has to actually go through this process by which he identifies certain things. There's this overlap of the way in which we navigate our way through the dark world. Jesus comes and says, I'm the light of the world. We say, great. But we cling to those mechanisms of figuring out life in the darkness. Whatever it may be for you. Isn't it interesting that even as Jesus says this, what's the immediate reaction of the religious leaders? Not, oh, maybe He does offer the light of life. Maybe He can help us to see. Maybe there's something we're missing. No, who are you? Who are you to teach us? Who are you? You're just claiming these things about yourself. You know the law requires two witnesses to establish any kind of truth claim. right? So this is actually a great picture. Right? So you've got Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. The Pharisees say, yeah, we don't really care what you say because that's a crazy claim and you would need someone to corroborate. And Jesus says, well, okay, I'm one and the Father's two. That's your corroboration. But what's really funny is that the Pharisees live in a world where it requires two, two witnesses. Right? Why do you need two witnesses? Because the entire world is characterized by falsehood. So the law has been written to handle the falsehood that already exists in the world 
when meeting Jesus. Jesus has no falsehood and comes from a world without falsehood in the Godhead. And so they're calling him to account based on a system that is, is designed to deal with falsehood when he is simply truth and he's the light of the world. It's an incredibly ironic picture. And yet it's one that reveals our hearts every day when Jesus comes to us and says, I am the light of the world. And we're tempted to say, yes, great, Jesus, thank you. But you know, I really had fun escaping and my show's on. And maybe, you know, we can, we'll, we'll do business later. Or Jesus, I'm so glad you're light of the world and you bring illumination, but the world is still super scary and I don't really like slowing down. The busier I am, the less I actually think about things and so I'm going to remain really, really busy. And I'll get to you when I have time, but isn't that, I mean, I'm an achiever. Isn't that noble? Or Jesus bringing the light of the world and, well, I'm prepared for the worst and Jesus says, well, Maybe you just need to trust me for the worst. No, I'm glad you bring light and illumination and salvation, but I don't really want you to bring illumination on this way that I've engaged the world because I'm very used to that and it's very comfortable and I don't want that upset. But this is what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world. That the mechanisms you've employed to deal with the darkness and to live in blindness are upended and must be rethought in Him. What is it actually look like. For those of you who are busy, it may be slowing down and hearing the voice of Jesus. For those of you who are simply scared and would choose to escape, uh, perhaps it is coming to Jesus and saying, I don't need to escape, but Jesus, I need you to hold my hand as I confront this thing that is actually scary to me. For those of you who would be overly prepared, maybe it's simply realizing that control is an illusion and you can't be prepared for everything. And so you simply walk with Christ and trust in Him. And in each of those things, you actually come a few steps into the light. You come next to Jesus and He removes the darkness and provides illumination. And does that mean the world isn't scary? No. Does that mean that things aren't going to surprise you? And does that mean you're not going to get hurt? Definitely not. In fact, I can pretty much ensure you that all those things will happen. The world will remain scary and you will be unprepared and out of control and you will get hurt. But that's exactly the point. Because it's there where you actually meet Christ. Do you see the danger of going through the world living in blindness? You think you can navigate things okay. You think you've got things under control. And you don't think you really need any more light. You've got just enough light to affect salvation, and that's good. I'm great. I'll keep going. And it's only when you recognize that your mechanisms, by living in a world in which you've been born blind, are nonsense, and actually keep you from Jesus, that you actually move near Him and understand what it means when He says that I am the light of the world. Have you ever wondered, you know, in our passage today, it's a great place to consider this, and with this we'll close, that Jesus Jesus is very confusing in the Gospel of John when it comes to judgment. Right? Early in the passage, He says that I do not judge. And then later in the passage, He says, even if I do judge. And if you go through the Gospel of John, you actually find this going on fairly consistently, that at times Jesus says, I didn't come to judge, came to save. And at other times he says, well, I bring judgment. And you start to say, well, what's, what's the deal? 
Jesus, let's kind of, can you straighten things out for us? And it's John's intent, I think, to say, yes, Jesus doesn't come with the agenda to judge, to condemn. He doesn't come with that purpose. It isn't the last day of reckoning. But by virtue of His coming, by virtue of the light coming into the world, what is He saying? You have a decision to make. You can either actually step into the light or you can continue to walk in darkness. And again, if you think that decision is easy, you're foolish. And you haven't really thought about it. But Jesus says, listen to His hearers. He says, this isn't an an offer that doesn't expire. He says, In essence, he's talking in kind of mysterious language, but what he's saying is, I'm going to the cross, and you can't come there with me. And after that, you're going, the decision has to be made on your part, whether you want to live in the light or whether you want to continue to live in the darkness. And that is the decision that is before you. We're not talking simply about saying, yes, I believe in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of sinners. We're talking about saying, okay, I believe in Jesus, which means that I've been born in sin and utter darkness, that I've been blind and I cannot see, and that I only understand myself in this world to the degree that my vision is informed by the light of the world. And when that happens, everything turns upside down, but you're free, or begin the process of actually being free. What does that look like? Well, in reality, this is really a two-parter. John chapter 8, Jesus begins by saying, I am the light of this world. And you kind of say, what does that mean? And next week, in the rest of chapter 8, He says, I am the truth. It is the truth that sets you free. And if the Son sets you free, as John says in in chapter 8 of John, if the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. You want to taste that freedom? It begins by coming into the light that Jesus offers. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank You for providing light in a world that was immersed in darkness and continues to be immersed in darkness. We praise You, Lord Jesus, that You are light and that You illuminate our world and we ask You to illuminate our minds and our hearts and to be that light which helps us to understand ourselves and the world and to make our way in a way that is is trusting in You in a way that is not bound up with the the mechanisms by which we have tried to make our way in a dark world and living in blindness. Lord Jesus, we ask You to free us. And in being free, Your freedom will be freedom indeed. We ask that you would, we would taste that and You would encourage us at the table this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.